You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Gretchen Cara Daly. Uh, she's at Stanford, and we're going to be talking about uh, essentially valuing nature. Uh, they can call it uh, many things, uh, geography, etc. But uh, she's an ecologist by training, so we're going to be talking about uh, nature, what's going on with it, and how to preserve it. So, Gretchen, thanks for coming. Hey, thank you. Yeah. Tell me what what uh, what's your backstory? What's spurred your interest in what you do right now? Oh, man, my backstory is, um, maybe to put it one way, I grew up um, partly in West Germany. Um, I'm American by background, but a lot of strands. And um, as a kid, it was unbelievable to see acid rain uh, become a huge issue and just sort of kill off a lot of the forests. It was very visible, killed off a lot of the lakes. Um, and as a teenager, just kind of ignited this um, desire in me to do something. And now the world, you know, scrolling forward, it's incredible to see how much bigger the problems are um, with, you know, I live out here in California, seeing the, the fires is just um, emotionally really hard to live with, you know, breathing in the smoke of tragedy and um, seeing this unfold. I've got two teenagers thinking about the future but at the same time, looking back, you know, to my upbringing, we solved the problem of acid rain. In much of the world, we know how to solve these problems. And I feel we can rise to the task now of um, changing the way we think about, um, <clears throat> you know, how we live on the planet and how we fit in with the rest of life. And um, we, we can crack open a path that harmonizes people and the planet, nature the climate system and jobs and human well-being. Um, so that's what I'm focused on, and it's an exhilarating ride. No question here. You said you were able to see acid rain. What does that mean? I mean, just you able to see the effects? Yeah, the or... effects. I mean, well, you can taste it. You can taste okay. it in the fog. You can taste it on your tongue in the air. Tastes um, <laughs> like vinegar, and it there's a smell in the air you know and a lot of that's gone away thankfully but it's you know it's there I was living again in Germany um, 
in the 90s when the wall came down, but I, I went around East Germany just to kind of see see into the world there and um and the air was just thick with um that smell and taste i actually grew up right next to a coal factory um so you know i lived in that um atmosphere and sort of soup and i've worked a lot in china and um, know what poison air tastes and smells and feels like and then you see like in europe all these beautiful ancient cathedrals and other buildings and statues just kind of dissolving away under the acid and it um it's and then seeing the forests where everybody loves you know walking or just reading a book taking in the the beauty of a landscape seeing them look nuked you know it looked like um the area around chernobyl after that disaster this completely dead trees and in lakes they become completely clear because everything in them dies um so that's that's what it felt and tasted and looked like and today oh, um okay. <clears throat> yeah um so there were a lot of people demonstrating back then it was it was massive and as a teenager it really made an impact on me there were hundreds of thousands to millions of people in the streets protesting and they were protesting everything um environmental destruction um dominance of kind of capitalism and corporations above all these other things you know setting that out as a dichotomy and a opposition and um the other things being a secure life and attention to the human well-being and so on but um anyway it was a time that really seeped into my my heart and my mind and um so I ever since then <coughs> you know I thought um there has to be a way to bring people together and open up um a new paradigm a new a new way of looking at things and so working with many many other people um i've been focused on figuring out how to value nature in our decision making in our policies and our financial systems in management of everything from land to other natural resources and to you know corporations and kind of all the big players and it's um, so what's what's an example of how nature would be specifically valued in making a calculation yeah so the idea is to think about things that we need and one way to start with that is to imagine living on the moon a sterile you know landscape um and what would you need to make life not only possible but hopefully really fun and enjoyable and um So there's all sorts of stuff, all the food we you know enjoy. What's your favorite dinner and what goes into that? You know, uh what nature goes into producing wine? It's crazy that actually wasps play a big role in um the fermentation process in grapes, um biting into the grapes and transferring yeast that does the fermenting, stuff like that or coffee, you know, you wake up in the morning um a lot of people enjoy a cup of coffee and it turns out that bees that come from tropical rainforest play a huge role in the um productivity of coffee farms both by um helping to produce bigger and healthier coffee beans and also by um preventing pest damage so these bees play a big role and then birds and bats come in and 
eat up a lot of the things that would otherwise destroy the harvest. So they help farmers, they produce better quality, help produce better quality coffee. And it's kind of a win, win, win. But there are all these, you know, another example would be drinking water quality. You know, having safe drinking water depends in over a quarter of the world's cities and probably about half that get their water from surface supplies like rivers, streams, lakes. It all depends on having forest and wetlands around that purify the water before we um, have it enter our, our pipes and our, you know, glasses and bottled water and everything else. Um, so there are tons of roles like that where nature plays actually the starring role, and yet it's in a hidden kind of way. And what um, the Natural Capital Project that I co-founded with many others is trying to do is shine a light on all those intimate connections and actually quantify the values of nature in, in different types of ways that can be integrated into decision making. So what's, uh, okay, so it sounds like when projects don't take these things into account, they're actually hurting themselves and their ability to function as a project. So this will be beneficial. It should be a, uh, if put in the right way, it should be revealing all the economics of a calculation and making it more safe and less risky to do something. That's exactly it. And at many levels. So at the level of farmers, um, making it profitable to maintain tropical forest, for example, around coffee farms um, as a way of getting all these benefits of nature. At the level of uh, cities, thinking about all the benefits of green space in cities, urban dwellers like myself, we're all starved for contact with nature. And that shows up actually in a big increase in mental health related disorders in cities, um, higher anxiety, higher kind of mood problems relating to depression among city dwellers compared to people living out in the countryside. And so there's a huge movement now to quantify the mental health benefits, the physical health benefits, the um, just the security from flooding, the improvement in water quality, the moderating of temperatures, you know, um, <clears throat> keeping temperatures from getting too hot in cities, which tends to happen with all the concrete in them and the uh, very great absence of trees and other, you know, plants in green space that help cool cities. So in that arena, there's a lot of action now. And then all the way up to countries and companies um, and kind of the whole investment sector, there's um, just pioneering change underway that's really inspiring to see. I can give an example. Um, I'm trying to pick among many great examples, but let's pick the country of Belize, which um, has... It's tropical, it's got beautiful coral reefs, and it's got um, wonderful forests. All this well, one, one thing, too, just to yeah. interrupt you for a second, one reason so that this is so important yeah. to solve the city example, I, I know that one reason that it's so important is that most of the world's population is moving to cities. So if we don't solve having livable cities that are good for our citizens, then most of the world's population is going to live in crappy environments where we're going to have more and more problems, both health and mental. So that's exactly right. Why it's so important. Yeah. So over half of humanity is packed into cities now. People call this the urban century. It's likely that two thirds to even three quarters of humanity will be in cities by 
2050, 2070, around then. And um, most cities are becoming totally unlivable. And I'm sure many people can relate to that. So it's time. And there's political momentum where even if there's a lot of disarray at the national level politically in terms of supporting this kind of movement, mayors around the world get it. And um, I live out in the Bay Area in California. There's um, a lot of momentum behind um, this worry over a a nine or 10 foot sea level rise that's coming our way and is going to flood a lot of the property and a lot of the key infrastructure along the coastline. All our transportation, all the highways, the trains, all our power, both gas and electric, is right along um, the coastal margin at, you know, like a couple feet above sea level, communications, um, telephones, internet, all along there. And there's a huge value to investing in nature to help secure all that vital infrastructure, as well as, you know, all these other benefits of the mental and physical health and um, just greater access of communities to nature for many other types of benefits, water quality, um, and better climate, better air. Well, what's, what's, what's an example in, in terms of like a really dense city? How would you change things to improve, uh, you know, people in that city, improve their air and water, and, you know, yeah, access so, to green areas? Like, what do you so do? So two things. One is you convert areas that maybe are more run down, maybe property prices are lower, um, convert them to green space, just add in green space. And that's happening in a bunch of cities along old railway tracks that aren't used anymore or um, along old highly industrialized parts of a riverfront or other waterfront that are going to be redeveloped, redeveloped with green space, with nature. And they're great examples from New York to San Antonio to out here in the Bay Area. Um, Very densely populated and likely to become ever more so. But um, building in the green space, creating access to it, making it um, have all the elements of nature that confer these benefits. So little bits of marshland along rivers can really help with water purification, can also help with lowering flood risk, and then having um, a kind of natural green space and not just lawns, you know, maybe some lawns for kids to run around in, but more natural you know, trees and open areas for grown-ups to walk and talk in and people to go jogging in and all that um, helps clean the air, helps um, stimulate, you know, our mental health. And um, this is being brought to many communities. There's this idea, for example, of canopy equity. If you look at cities today, it's it's shocking. Look, using satellite imagery, excuse me, the areas that are wealthy are just covered in green, a lot of beautiful trees and little open spaces and stuff. And the areas that are not so well off are just gray. I mean, it's solid concrete of different colors of gray. And so there's a movement now around canopy equity and all of this um, generates kind of a win-win-win set of benefits for people um, and for like livable and economically vibrant cities. Um, so that's that's happening all over the world. 
So this is so it's important in cities to find like the brownfield areas, the areas that are not being used, and to specifically target those the blighted areas, turn them into green spaces. That yeah, that's absolutely well right. And then you know get more ambitious and do more. So around here, even golf courses are being converted at least partially into um, kind of marshes that offer other types of recreation and can be used for flood control in the times of like storms or high tides. Um, and then there's the whole thing about having a you know ring of green space around cities and creating better access to it for everybody through public transportation or programs from schools, from companies and other workplaces, just making um, an investment in green space around cities and making it possible for many more people to go out and enjoy those places on afternoons and weekends. Well, very good. Well, Gretchen, are there examples in the U.S. of cities that you think have done a particularly good job and maybe mention just one of the projects you've seen? Yeah, so I've mentioned this one in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's really getting traction across nine counties, um, <clears throat> creating a lot more green space and securing the beautiful sort of redwoods and grasslands up in the hills around the city or the many cities here, big metropolis. Another is Seattle that um, is opening up much more public transportation and just kind of even better roads for private transportation out to existing green spaces that were relatively inaccessible. Another is San Antonio that has built up a beautiful river walk and revitalized the downtown by converting, like you're saying, the more industrial um, brown spaces into a vibrant area that brings people together, that's got a lot of commercial activity, that's got <clears throat> just a lot of recreation and other kind of outdoor activity. And in the a new part of San Antonio, same thing happening with a lot of art and um, educational programs, as well as, you know, the commercial activity. So just visualizing a future that blends the economic development we want to see with securing of nature. And at the national scale, it's incredible to see this taking off in countries across the world. So the U.S. is leading in some of it, but I have to say the the most um, dramatic change right now is happening in China, a place we often hear about in the U.S. in terms of um, just sheer devastation on the environment. And um, they have gone to the greatest extremes of devastating flooding and poisoned air and water. But recognizing that and waking up to it now, they're investing more than any other country in converting to green energy. Um, so like one of their cities, Shenzhen, now has all electric vehicles. And building in, Shenzhen has about 40% tree cover today, and they're trying to even secure that and build it up more. So visualizing um, a future with land zoning and um, investment, you know, so seeing nature as uh, the driver of economic prosperity and engine of um, economic development is a sort of a whole new way of looking at things in real decision making. So investing billions of dollars in this um, ecological civilization, as they're calling it in China. And the same approach is now being advanced across Latin America through the Inter-American Development Bank and other investors um, looking for 
countries and many now have stepped up to this, developing plans that involve increasing the amount of nature in its many forms in a country as development takes place. So hand in hand, improving um, jobs and livelihoods and health and other aspects of human well-being and at the same time really securing nature. Well, very good. Well, Gretchen, um, <clears throat> unfortunately we're out of time, but what, what is the best way for people to follow up and see more of your particular work and what you're doing? Yeah, thank you for this. <clears throat> um, it's fantastic talking with you. A really good way to follow up is to look at the website of the Natural Capital Project. It's a global initiative being led by many countries around the world. And it's just www.naturalcapitalproject.org. And um, okay. you'll great. see well, some stuff going on. Thank you, Thank Richard. You. Thank you very much for coming. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.